Before we get started in this podcast, I should warn you that at first, in the first bits of the podcast, there is some foul language, language that is not appropriate necessarily for children. If you have children in the car or in the room with you, please save this episode for a time when you can listen to it. Otherwise, here we go. Remember those last bits of Canto 18? How utterly disgusting they were? Well, as disgusting as they were, we're about to jump up into the heights of heavenly discourse. Inferno is nothing if not shocking. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We have been in the disgusting filth of the flatterers. Before that, we were with the pimps and the seducers, all in the 18th canto of inferno the first two evil pouches of fraud now we are about to come to the third pouch of fraud and as disgusting as it was with the flatterers this canto changes course entirely in order to let you see how that happens when i read the passage for this episode of the podcast i'd like to start in canto 18 with the last few lines of 18 and this run right in to the first 12 lines of inferno canto 19 where we actually are for this podcast so let's get to it then my leader said to me stick out your head a little farther in that direction so that you can get a better look at the features of that disgusting disheveled slut scratching herself with her shit-filled fingernails now squatting down now standing up on her feet she's thais the whore her lover asked her have i gained your favor and she said enough to be a marvel and that's all our eyes need to know about her. Oh, Simon Magus, oh, tortured disciples of his, you treat the things of God as fungible, you rapacious salesmen, bartering them for gold and silver, those very things that should be married to all that's good. Now let the trumpet sound for the likes of you, because the third pouch holds you in place. We had already come to the subsequent trench, having climbed up the ridge to that part that hangs out over the middle of the ditch. Oh, highest wisdom, great is your craft in the heavens, on earth, and in the world of evil. What's more, how just are the lots your power ascribes. That's where we're going to stop it. As Dante gets way up on his high horse, having come straight up to his high horse from the very depths of disgustingness. This is an, a curious canto 19. It is one of the most famous of Inferno. We're going to take it slowly. We're just starting with the opening 12 lines in this episode because there is already so much to impact. So <laughs> let's get to it. O oh, Simon Magus, O oh, tortured disciples of his, you treat the things of God as fungible, you rapacious salesmen, bartering them for gold and silver, those very things that should be married to all that's good. 
This is what in literary studies is called an apostrophe. That is a direct address, not an apostrophe, as in something that elides a letter in a word or gives us the possessive in English, but an apostrophe in literary terms is a direct address, usually toward a higher power, although not always. You'll notice that this canto opens unlike any other canto in Inferno. Almost all the cantos open either with some description of the pilgrim or some sensory-based description of the landscape. But this canto opens with a plea, an apostrophe. And so this canto is automatically set apart. There is no other canto in Inferno that opens like the 19th. It opens with a reference to Simon Magus, and let me unpack that for you. The original reference for Simon Magus is from the New Testament book, The Acts of the Apostles. It's in chapter 8, verses 9 through 24. Simon Magus is a magician or a sorcerer from Samaria, a part of the Levant of what uh, some Christians call the Holy Land. He's a magician who practices his magic and probably gains a nice living from practicing his magic on the local villagers. And the evangelist Philip comes through, preaches the gospel, converts everybody, and even Simon Magus. And furthermore, Peter and John show up. They lay hands on everybody, and people get the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is in the Acts of the Apostles, the ability to do miracles and the ability to tell prophecies. Simon Magus apparently doesn't get these gifts of the Spirit, and so he asks Peter if he can buy them. Peter roundly condemns him, in fact, seems to actually bring on a wish for his death. Simon Magus backs up, says, oh my gosh, I hope that doesn't happen. And then the story ends. And I think we're supposed to take it that Simon has learned his lesson that you can't buy the ability to disperse the gifts of the Holy Spirit like miracles and prophecies. But there's more to the story than just this. In the apocryphal Acts of Peter, there's more to the story of Simon Magus. It's doubtful that Dante knew Acts of Peter, this apocryphal New Testament book, but the story about Simon Magus that is in that apocryphal, that is not part of the canonical New Testament, had become part of medieval folklore. And here's how that story goes. Simon Magus is a magician in Nero's court. So by this point, I guess he's moved on to bigger pastures than outback rural Samaria. He's moved to Rome. He's a magician in Nero's court. Peter ends up in Rome. Uh, Simon Magus challenges Peter to a magic contest, as it were, a magic duel uh, to see which one of them can do better magic since Peter is doing all these miracles in Rome. You should think that there's an echo here between Moses and the priests of Pharaoh. They have a same kind of contest in which they throw down their staves and they become snakes and Moses' snakes eat Pharaoh's priests' snakes. It's that same kind of magic contest there, except now it's Peter and Simon Magus in Rome. Simon Magus gets a demon to carry him way up in the air so it looks like he's 
flying, Peter prays, Simon falls, the demon lets go, or God breaks the demon's hold over Simon. He falls and he hits the ground and breaks his leg in three places. This is all going to become very important. All that detail that I just told you is all going to sit inside this canto from legs to threes to magic acts to metamorphosis. It's all going to sit inside this canto ultimately. So I told you this entire story to set you up for what's to come. And the very first words, oh, Simon Magus, set us up for what's ahead. And clearly what we can see that is ahead of us is a denunciation of the church, but let's just do the text first. So we open with this apostrophe, O Simon Magus, O tortured disciples of his, you treat the things of God as fungible, you were patient salesman, bartering them for gold and silver. So the problem is you take the things of God, and here we should probably hear church acts, church services, and you, well, metamorphosize them into gold and silver. You take the things that are meant to be good, all that's married, that's supposed to be good, and you turn it into gold and silver. We're going to talk more about this in episodes ahead, but the references here between the church and Christ and the church as the bride of Christ, there's going to become all kinds of marital references throughout this canto. Um, That's all going to be part of it, but what I want to point out right at this second is the notion of turning things into gold and silver. The words gold and silver or gold or silver, either construction, gold and silver, or gold or silver, are going to be repeated three times in this canto. And three is going to become incredibly important to the canto. There are going to be three popes. There are going to be three apostrophes or direct pleas. We have two of them in this passage. First to Simon Magus, and then second to Highest Wisdom. There's going to come a third later on. This canto is highly structured all set around sets of three repeated words three times. All of that kind of structure is sitting here. And you should know that even though this canto seems to absolutely reverse course, like we're going down the highway with this kind of disgusting, disheveled people in the human latrine of the second evil pouch, and then all of a sudden we jump up to the heavens of prophetic discourse, and uh, we'll talk more about this, of Jeremiah's and denunciations of sinful activity. It's such a wild jump up. However, it's not completely divorced from the previous canto because I'm just setting this up for what comes inside of this canto, pimping and seduction and certainly prostitution will run underneath this indictment of the church. So we haven't left flattery. There's going to be some very snarky, mean flattery, some things that look like flattery, but of course are just really harsh wit. And we're going to see some pimping, prostituting. We're even going to see a whore in this canto or the church described as a whore. We haven't left anything from canto 18 behind. Instead, we've picked it up as an undertow here. And just 
as in Canto 18, men turn women into money by pimping them out. Clearly, here we're coming into a world in which people turn the things of the church into money, another minor metamorphosis. The passage goes on, now let the trumpet sound for the likes of you because the third pouch holds you in place. This is a reference to the trumpet of the last judgment, at least that's how I take it. Uh, There are some other interpretations of this trumpet, including a kind of clarion call through the streets, Uh, oftentimes as judgment was pronounced on a prisoner in small towns, someone would sound a trumpet through the streets that that can be sitting behind this. I take this more as the trumpets of the last judgment because this entire canto is going to get bound up eventually with the apocalypse and that Dante drops a notion of the trumpet here that will ultimately pay off later in the canto when we get a kind of full on discussion of the apocalypse. It seems to be part of Dante's technique to drop the seed and then let it flourish later. The last time we heard about trumpets was in Canto 6 with Chaco, when Virgil says that Chaco won't return to consciousness and even his body until the la- the trumpet sounds, the last judgment sounds, and the trumpet comes, you know, blares and the last judgment happens. That's interesting, I think, because back there we have an apocalyptic reference and Virgil's saying as Chaco falls back, seemingly dazed and confused, Virgil says, well, he's not going to really come back to until the trumpet sounds. It's interesting because there we have a denunciation of Florence. Remember the whole discussion with Chaco and blacks and whites and the denunciation of Florentine violence and the hellscape that Florence becomes because of violence? It's interesting there that the denunciation is against Florence and now the denunciation is against the church and both pieces end in apocalypse. You'll ultimately hear me argue that what has happened here is that the civic indictments that Dante has been building up over the course of Inferno are suddenly, and it is suddenly, suddenly morphed, turned, changed toward ecclesiastical indictments, but using similar language for the two. It's just that the, how do I say, the the target that the barb sticks in has changed from civic government to ecclesiastical government. But we have to kind of save most of that for the canto ahead. Let's keep going in the passage. So we come out of this apostrophe and we hit a little narrative stretch. We had already come to the subsequent ridge, having climbed up the ridge of that part that hangs over the middle of the ditch. It's interesting that inside of this apostrophe, this, uh, as I said, high horse moment from the poet, it's interesting that now we get just a little bit of narrative set in there. Remember in the last canto, they have seen from on top of the, the ridge-like structure that goes over the ditch, they've seen the flatterers down there. And here we've already passed on into the abutments and then beyond into the subsequent trench or the third ditch. And Dante inserts this narrative inside of a larger, for lack of a better word right now, prophetic pronouncement. And by prophetic, I don't mean telling the future. Instead, what I mean 
is the old school notion of a Jeremiah. A Jeremiah actually comes out of American Puritan history, but a Jeremiah was a sermon preached in the style of Jeremiah the prophet, a denunciation of the sinfulness of the world or of society. But in this case, of course, you can already feel it coming, of the church. And inside this Jeremiah, an old form of preaching a straight out denunciation, is inserted this narrative tercet, this narrative three-line bit. Interesting that Dante feels the need to break that up. Maybe it's because of what comes next. The last three lines of the passage are, O highest wisdom, great is your craft in the heavens, on earth, and in the world of evil. What's more, how just are the lots your power ascribes. This is much more of a prayer, not a denunciation against the disciples of Simon Magus. This is much more of a direct address, an apostrophe toward God. And maybe that's why that narrative insertion happens, to separate the two so that we hear the denunciation We then see the narrative, and then we turn and make a prayer to God. This is one of the prayers of Inferno. We've talked about them already, and it's important to note here that the prayers are becoming increasingly Christian. Remember, we start out early in Inferno with prayers to the muses and invocations to the muses. And here we're moving for more and more toward a Christian prayer. We're still not there yet. Oh, highest wisdom, great is your craft in heavens, on earth, and in the world of evil. What's more, how just are the lots your power ascribes, the, the fates, the lots your power ascribes. I mean, we're getting closer. You can hear the Christianity starting to build behind this. But again, God is not addressed directly. Highest wisdom is what it says. And there is no necessarily Christian invocation here. Rather, a power that oversees the justice of the world through craft, through art. We want to talk much more about that in the canto ahead because it's setting us up for the notion of craft. And believe me, Of almost any canto we have encountered so far, I can think of a couple exceptions, this is the most crafty or craft-filled. But I also mean crafty in all the ways that means in English. Okay, a couple larger questions about these 12 lines before we're done. Let's talk for a minute about the historical background that's going on here. The reforming popes of the 11th and early 12th centuries. And here, I'm particularly thinking about Gregory VII, that is, St. Gregory. I'm also thinking of Victor III, who condemned lay vestiture. And I'm thinking about Innocent II, who called the Second Lateran Council. These reforming popes made a change in the way church offices are distributed. Before their reforming moves, bishoprics particularly, but many church offices, were handed out by kings, dukes, princes, and even local warlords. If you had a piece of property in a feudal system, you could actually pass out the churchly favors of that property. Listen, this goes on all the way up until the 19th century. Although these popes try to change the terms of the game, 
<laughs> this goes on even in Middlemarch. I mean, in George Eliot's novel Middlemarch, when Dorothea's first husband dies and Dorothea gains control of their property at Lowick, one of the first things she does is give a local Church of England priest the church on her property. So this still goes on that, you know, the landowners controlled the church offices. But the reforming popes were trying to remove the bishoprics, particularly the bishoprics, from the control of kings dukes and local warlords. What they did is they moved the bestowal of bishoprics and other church offices into the church, into the church's control as a way to pull it out of political control. Because you can imagine that if a king or a local warlord can give away a bishopric, my gosh, that is a moment rife for all kinds of corruption. I mean, you know, I could just go to court, you know, pass a little coin over to the king's best man or one of the princes, get my kid a bishopric. You, you could just you can see the level of corruption that could happen here. And these popes were honestly trying to reform away this corrupt practice of selling various church positions and church favors to political leaders. The problem is, and we'll talk more about this as we move through Canto 19, they brought the corruption straight into the church. They had the best of intentions about how to reform church practices, but in fact, now the corruption sat right inside the church. Okay, so you don't have to go pass a little coin to a, a duke or a local warlord. They can just pass a little coin to an archbishop or to a cardinal or... Hmm, to a pope. You could just pass a little coin over and, you know, get your son a position, get yourself a position in the church. I should say it's not just church positions. Let's say that it becomes an open fact that I'm an adulterer, that I've got a wife, she's back in my castle. <laughs> I'm a local landed guy. I got a wife, she's back in my castle, but everybody knows I live over here with some other woman in another castle. And you know, hey, it's a very Christian age. I don't want to miss out on the sacraments in case I go to hell. So I go to the bishop, maybe the king. I go somewhere. I slip a little coin. I get to take the sacraments. Everybody turns a blind eye to my mistress in the other house over there. It's not just the selling of church offices. It's the selling of all the things that the church does, the bestowal of sacraments. You know, or let's say, with that wife in that house over there, I have a kid. The church would not officially recognize that child necessarily. I pass a little coin around. I get that child baptized. I bought it. I bought the sacrament of baptism. Or I bought the sacrament of the Eucharist. I, You know, hey... A little coin makes things slide along nicely. The historical background here, again, is that the reforming popes of the late 11th and early 12th centuries tried to bring control of these matters inside the church. And really, all they did is they brought the corruption into the church with them. Okay, one more background material statement about this passage. Who says these lines? Oh, Simon Magus, oh, tortured disciple of his. You treat the things of God as fungible, you rapacious salesman, bartering them for gold, those very things that should be married to all that's good. Who says that? That's not the pilgrim, is it? I mean, the pilgrim could easily say that terse of, 
we had already come to the subsequent trench, having climbed up the ridge to that part that hangs out over the middle of the ditch. So you could say that the poet says the first six lines all the way down to the trumpet and the third pouch. Then the pilgrim takes over and tells a little bit of the story where they are in the hellscape. And then the poet steps back forward and says, oh, highest wisdom, great is your craft. I mean, this is a confusing bit of who says what. And we assume that these apostrophes, these pleas, the first two of which you see here, are said by the poet Dante. But Mark Musa, in his commentary on the 19th Canto of Inferno, points out that the learning process the pilgrim undergoes in comedy is telescoped in Canto 19. Now, let me explain this. We haven't talked in a while about the difference between the poet and the pilgrim and the poet's voice and the pilgrim's voice. We talked about that a lot early on, and we've kind of left it behind us, but this Canto is going to force it back onto us. Remember, there's the notion that there is the poet who is writing the poem, who has all kinds of commentary glossing to add on the pilgrim's narrative. The pilgrim's the one walking down here and experiencing things, talking to Brunetta Latino, talking to Farinata, talking to Francesca. That's the pilgrim walking down, telling us that story. But behind the pilgrim is the poet. And the poet is occasionally throwing out glosses on the text itself. And we can suddenly get glimpses of Dante at his desk writing the poem over the course of comedy. And this is jumping way ahead, but over the course of comedy, part of its story is that the pilgrim and the poet become more and more one until we hit the last bits of Paradiso in which there is no gap, no light visible between the pilgrim and the poet. And they have fused into one thing. But in Canto 19 of Inferno, unlike any place else in Inferno, really, the poet and the pilgrim seem to fuse into one thing. And so Musa makes the point, again, that the learning process the pilgrim undergoes in comedy is telescoped in 19. If you know anything about what's ahead, that telescoping, and I'm adding this, this is not Musa's point, that telescoping of poet and pilgrim that happens here makes the poet's treatment of Virgil in Canto 20 ahead of us all the harsher. But we're going to have to hold that and wait till we get to Canto 20. Let's just stick in 19 right now. In this Canto, the voice of the poet and the voice of the pilgrim seem to fuse because although we would stand here now and say, oh, that's the poet talking. Oh, Simon Magus. Oh, tortured disciples of his. That's got to be the poet, right? Later in this Canto, the pilgrim will speak in that kind of oracular, prophetic voice, making us then rethink the opening, the proem, the prefatory poem that opens this canto. And we realize back in the back of this canto that really the pilgrim is able to talk in this kind of oracular, prophetic voice out of a 
tradition of prophetic denunciation, or to use the American term from American Puritanism, the Jeremiah. The poet is able to do this, and the pilgrim is able to do this, and they become indistinguishable in this canto. But that lies ahead of us. There is so much more ahead. We've barely got the plot underway. We just have them at the subsequent trench. We just have them climbed up on the ridge. They're looking down into the ditch and they're about to see something that is a little bit mind-blowing and that is way more daring than almost anything we've seen so far in Inferno. So come back, subscribe to the podcast, like it, rate it, give it a verbal rate, just say great, and that would be fabulous if you could write something. Otherwise, come back and check out the next episode of Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. See you soon.